Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 488, Recitations. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I'm sorry I missed you last week. It was crazy. And it included oral surgery, which is always an adventure. And this turned out to be twice as much fun as it should have been. But I'm better now, (laughs) and I'm able to speak and sit up and walk around. And I can almost eat actual food, so I'm very excited about that. Ah, good times, I tell you what. But that means I I missed our anniversary. I missed our birthday, our craftlet birthday. So, happy 12 years, heading on to 13. And, let's see, the day this goes live will be the day before my birthday. Room with the View will come out on my birthday, and I'm just trying not to think about how old it indicates I am. I don't feel that old, but time is a funny thing. Time is a fickle mistress. However, one thing that isn't a fickle mistress is the BBC. We had the BBC to thank for a new woman in white. Now, this is only being shown in the UK right now, but it will eventually come to the States and elsewhere on the globe. Those of you who are in the UK and have seen it, please let us know what you think. Is it worthy? How's their Fosco? How's their Walter? What's Marion like? Did they cast it well? Where are they filming it? You know, easy stuff. I'm fascinated to know how they've pulled this off since the previous filmed version was, aside from Fosco, so distressingly wrong in so, so many ways. So... I have a link out to the bbc.co.uk page on The Women in White for you. Also, a heads up, if you haven't seen the latest Avengers movie, The Infinity War, if you, if you have been kind of tangentially following the Avengers, I would make sure you see Thor Ragnarok right before seeing Infinity War. Along with that, I would prepare yourself for some pretty intense existential morass waiting to go on after seeing the Infinity War film. I don't know that I expected a Marvel Comics movie to get exactly that deep or thought-provoking, I guess. It's not so deep, but it is thought-provoking. It went there. The end is kind of upsetting. It's a cliffhanger. It's kind of an upsetting cliffhanger. So Black Panther, everybody should go see it. It's fantastic. It's rousing. It's a a good cheer. Excellent anti-hero. Complicated and smart and really, really awesome actor. The Infinity War one is, it's kind of grown up. So, wow, there was that. And piggybacking on some of the that, there was a comment that Kanye West made this week, and there's been kind of a kerfuffle going on about one of the things he said, which was sort of taken out of context. 
if you listen to the entire clip or you watch the entire clip of him speaking, he kind of meanders his way around to making a point that reasonable people could debate and have a discussion about. But the soundbite clip that got released, that, that one's just deadly. It all came to me on the heels of having read an article that morning on um, vulture.com, which normally is a site I don't really hang out on very much. But it's an article about Zora Neale Hurston, author of Their Eyes Were Watching God, beautiful book, which is not news. A lot of the work that she did in uh, folklore research and in preserving stories of people, especially in the South, especially slaves, preserving them in, in dialect, where she, she took notes so that you could hear them speak, even though she didn't have a tape recorder with her in the 20s and 30s. There was a, a lot of controversy around the work that she was doing as the Harlem Renaissance kind of picked up. And uh, her story is a, a frustratingly sad one. But back when I was teaching Their Eyes Were Watching God, my understanding was that most of her field work had been lost. And it turns out not so much. They are releasing a new book called Barracoon. And there's a whole explanation for what that means. And really, you need to read this. I either tweeted it out or, or posted it in the Facebook group in kind of in a semi-drugged haze this week. But she took down the story of a man who had himself survived the Middle Passage, lived through several years of slavery. This was towards the end of the war. He was brought in actually illegally after slavery had been ended officially. I'm using air quotes. Survived several years of slavery and wound up not having to be a sharecropper, he and the people who he was with, many of whom were from the same part of Africa that he'd been taken out of, so they had kind of common, common cultural shorthand, they worked their butts off, they pooled their money, they bought land, they started a town that's still there. You have to read this story. It, I just got chills again. It is so intense and incredible and heartbreaking but also in a good way, because the dude persevered. I mean, my God, it's it's just wonderful. So I am linking out to that article from the show notes for this episode 488. So it'll be at craftlit.com slash 488. <sighs> That's all the extra stuff. I've been working on English paper piecing, but I've been doing some funny things with it that I will share with you soon, I hope, because I really hope I'm done with it soon. But we have an excellent chapter today. Yay! So, things to know heading into it. First off, Diana and Anne have a flash of genius early on, which I think is a testimony to the whole don't you have an imagination kind of thing. So there's, there's great stuff going on there. There is a phrase that I have never come across before. I've linked out to an image to help you see the difference because I couldn't see the difference in my mind's eye. And would not be pleased with my lack of imagination, I'm sure. It is a pung sleigh. That is spelled P-U-N-G. A pung sleigh is a box sleigh. So if you think of kind of the classic Christmas sleigh, one horse, not Santa's, one horse, one sleigh, two sled runners <laughs> underneath the sleigh, that probably in your mind's eye has kind of a curly front. It's kind of swoopy. It looks pretty comfortable. A pung sleigh, not so much. 
a pung sleigh is really a box on sleds with a horse pulling it on sled runners. So, pung sleigh. You will hear a reference. She almost took out the last shot she had in her locker. A locker was another name for an ammunition chest. It still is used that way. Um, there's the Hurt Locker movie that came out, but that's, that's the locker that she's referring to just colloquially. You'll hear a reference to getting some sand to clean the floor. I looked around for a while. I knew what we were talking about, but I wanted to get more information because all of a sudden it occurred to me that could be difficult to keep up because at some point, aren't you going to just run through the wood entirely? Well, these are fat pine plank floors, probably pine plank floors. If they're kept clean, there will be less bacteria slash buggies slash ick that could eat away at the wood. So the cleaner you keep it, the longer it's going to last. And one of the ways that they did this was by taking sand. In this case, it's a pretty good bet that this came from Cavendish Beach because it has white sand, fairly fine-grained sand. And you take a handful of sand and put it where you need it and then either get a, a rag or a scrub brush, some water. You could add soap, although there is great debate <laughs> as to whether it should be added or not. I leave it up to you. And then you scrub away at the spot. Or if you were unlucky enough to be a scullery maid, you would scrub the entire floor. Now, one of the reasons that we know some of what was done to the floors, because, of course, things that women did in the home weren't often written down, this was written down a little. The place where you really have this written down was in naval law or naval rule books, basically, from the late 1700s, where the, the men on board used a holy stone, H-O-L-Y-S-T-O-N-E, which I think we've talked about before, about cleaning fireplaces and stonework with another piece of stone, in this case, sandstone. One theory about the holy stone name is that you have to use it on your knees, and it looks like you're praying. So a large holy stone was called a Bible. A smaller, more worn-down holy stone was called a prayer book. And there was something called sand boils. Yeah, don't eat right now. So if you were unlucky enough to be swabbing the deck on your knees with a holy stone, which is sandstone, little tiny pieces of sand would be left behind until you rinse the deck. If you are out in a pair of cutoffs and your knees are exposed and you're kneeling in the sand in the salt air and you're moving around on the deck, first off, all I can think is, oh my gosh, the splinters you must risk. But evidently the splinters were not nearly as bad as the sand that would get ground into the skin on your knees and make these little, very painful sand boils that the doctors on board the ship would then have to treat. There's a scene evidently in Master and Commander with Russell Crowe and uh, Paul Bettany where you can see people using a holy stone on the deck of the ship. So you'll hear a reference to cleaning the floor with sand, and that's not a mistake. That's real. Lounge is another word for sofa, and... You'll hear a reference to a silk waist. Now, you may have heard of a shirt waist or a shirt waist dress. Boy, say that 10 times fast. A silk waist sounds like it's quite different. It's not. You have to go back pre-1950s, pre-shirt waist dresses, back into the late 1800s, early 1900s, Gibson girl era. If you think back to the way you've seen, possibly, 
costumes or dresses designed in that era. The skirt was the skirt and the top was the top. And the top looked often like a, a more or less like a, a man's shirt. There was a collar to it. Um, there were cuffs. There were often buttons down the front. But it all kind of gathered into a fitted waist. It was a shirt waist. The waist wasn't just the part of the body that we refer to as a waist. The entire top portion was considered a waist. W-A-I-S-T, not W-A-S-T-E. So a shirt waist would be a waist, the top part of a woman's clothing that looked like a shirt. A silk waist would be the same part of the dress or outfit made of silk. And the last bit, there's going to be more spare room love going on in today's chapter, chapter 19. All right, more on the flip side. Here you go. Listen to Kim Zuckert reading you chapter 19 from Anne of Green Cables. Here we go. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read by Kim Zuckert. Chapter 19, A Concert, A Catastrophe, and a Confession. Marilla, can I go over to see Diana just for a minute? asked Anne, running breathlessly down from the East Gable one February evening. I don't see what you want to be traipsing about after dark for, said Marilla shortly. You and Diana walked home from school together and then stood down there in the snow for half an hour or more, your tongues going the whole blessed time clickety-clack, so I don't think you're very badly off to see her again. But she wants to see me, pleaded Anne. She has something very important to tell me. How do you know she has? "'because she just signaled me from her window. "'We've arranged a way to signal with our candles and cardboard. "'We set the candle on the window sill and make flashes "'by passing the cardboard back and forth. "'So many flashes mean a certain thing. "'It was my idea, Marilla.' "'I'll warrant you it was,' said Marilla emphatically, "'and the next thing you'll be setting fire to the curtains "'with your signaling nonsense. "'Oh, we're very careful, Marilla, and it's so interesting. Two flashes mean, are you there?' Three mean yes, and four no. Five mean come over as soon as possible because I have something important to reveal. Diana has just signaled five flashes, and I'm really suffering to know what it is. Well, you needn't suffer any longer, said Marilla sarcastically. You can go, but you're to be back here in just ten minutes. Remember that. Anne did remember it, and was back in the stipulated time although probably no mortal will ever know just what it cost her to confine the discussion of Diana's important communication within the limits of ten minutes. But at least she'd made good use of them. Oh, Marilla, what do you think? You know tomorrow's Diana's birthday. Well, her mother told her that she could ask me to go home with her from school and stay all night with her, and her cousins are coming over from Newbridge in a big pung sleigh to go to the debating club concert at the hall tomorrow night, and they're going to take Diana and me to the concert. If you'll let me go, that is. You will, won't you, Marilla? Oh, I feel so excited. You can calm down, then, because you're not going. You're better at home in your own bed, and as for that club concert, it's all nonsense, and little girls should not be allowed to go out to such places at all. I'm sure the debating club is a most respectable affair, pleaded Anne. I'm not saying it isn't, but you're not going to begin gadding about to concerts and staying out all hours of the night. Pretty doings for children. I'm surprised at Mrs. Barry's letting Diana go. But it's such a very special occasion, mourned Anne, on the verge of tears. 
Diana only has one birthday in a year. It isn't as if birthdays were common things, Marilla. Prissy Andrews is going to recite, Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight. That's such a good moral piece, Marilla. I'm sure it would do me lots of good to hear it. And the choir are going to sing four lovely, pathetic songs that are pretty near as good as hymns. And, oh, Marilla, the minister is going to take part. Yes, indeed, he is. He's going to give an address. That'll be just about the same thing as a sermon. Please, mayn't I go, Marilla? You heard what I said, Anne, didn't you? Take off your boots now and go to bed. It's past eight. There's just one more thing, Marilla, said Anne, with the air of producing the last shot in her locker. Mrs. Barry told Diana that we might sleep in the spare room bed. Think of the honor of your little Anne being put in the spare room bed. It's an honor you'll have to get along without. Go to bed, Anne, and don't let me hear another word out of you. When Anne, with tears rolling over her cheeks, had gone sorrowfully upstairs, Matthew, who had been apparently sound asleep on the lounge during the whole dialogue, opened his eyes and said decidedly, Well now, Marilla, I think you ought to let Anne go. I don't, then, retorted Marilla. Who's bringing this child up, Matthew, you or me? "'Well, now you,' admitted Matthew. "'Don't interfere, then.' "'Well, now I ain't interfering. "'It ain't interfering to have your own opinion, "'and my opinion is that you ought to let Anne go. "'You'd think I ought to let Anne go to the moon "'if she took the notion, I've no doubt,' "'was Marilla's amiable rejoinder. "'I might have let her spend the night with Diana, "'if that was all, but I don't approve of this concert plan. "'She'd go there and catch cold like as not "'and have her head filled up with nonsense and excitement.' It would unsettle her for a week. I understand that child's disposition and what's good for it better than you, Matthew. I think you ought to let Anne go, repeated Matthew firmly. Argument was not his strong point, but holding fast to his opinion certainly was. Marilla gave a gasp of helplessness and took refuge in silence. The next morning, when Anne was washing the breakfast dishes in the pantry, Matthew paused on his way out to the barn to say to Marilla again, I think you ought to let Anne go, Marilla. For a moment, Marilla looked things not lawful to be uttered. Then she yielded to the inevitable and said tartly, Very well, she can go, since nothing else will please you. Anne flew out of the pantry, dripping dishcloth in hand. Oh, Marilla, Marilla, say those blessed words again. I guess once is enough to say them. This is Matthew's doing, and I wash my hands of it. If you catch pneumonia, sleeping in a strange bed, or coming out of that hot hall in the middle of the night, don't blame me, blame Matthew. And surely you're dripping greasy water all over the floor. I never saw such a careless child. Oh, I know I'm a great trial to you, Marilla, said Anne repentantly. I make so many mistakes, but then just think of all the mistakes I don't make. Although I might, I'll get some sand and scrub up the spots before I go to school. Oh, Marilla, my heart was just set on going to that concert. I never was to a concert in my life. And when the other girls talk about them in school, I feel so out of it. You didn't know just how I felt about it. But you see, Matthew did. Matthew understands me, and it's so nice to be understood, Marilla. Anne was just too excited to do herself justice as to lessons that morning in school. Gilbert Blythe spelled her down in class and left her clear out of sight in mental arithmetic. Anne's consequent humiliation was less than it might have been, however, in view of the concert and the spare-room bed. 
She and Diana talked so constantly about it that day that with a stricter teacher than Mr. Phillips, dire disgrace must inevitably have been their portion. Anne felt that she could not have borne it if she had not been going to the concert, for nothing else was discussed that day in school. The Avonlea Debating Club, which met fortnightly all winter, had had several smaller free entertainments, but this was to be a big affair, admission ten cents in aid of the library. The Avonlea young people had been practicing for weeks, and all the scholars were especially interested in it by reason of older brothers and sisters who were going to take part. Everybody in school over nine years of age expected to go, except Carrie Sloan, whose father shared Marilla's opinions about small girls going out to night concerts. Carrie Sloan cried into her grammar all the afternoon and felt that life was not worth living. For Anne, the real excitement began with the dismissal of school and increased therefrom in crescendo until it reached to a crash of positive ecstasy in the concert itself. They had a perfectly elegant tea, and then came the delicious occupation of dressing in Diana's little room upstairs. Diana did Anne's front hair in the new pompadour style, and Anne tied Diana's bows with the especial knack she possessed, and they experimented with at least half a dozen ways of arranging their back hair. At last they were ready, cheeks scarlet and eyes glowing with excitement. True, Anne could not help a little pang when she contrasted her plain black tam and shapeless, tight-sleeved, homemade gray cloth coat with Diana's jaunty fur cap and smart little jacket. But she remembered in time that she had an imagination and could use it. Then Diana's cousins, the Murrays from Newbridge, came. They all crowded into the big pung sleigh among straw and furry robes. Anne reveled in the drive to the hall, slipping along over the satin-smooth roads with the snow crisping under the runners. There was a magnificent sunset, and the snowy hills and deep blue water of the St. Lawrence Gulf seemed to rim in the splendor like a huge bowl of pearl and sapphire brimmed with wine and fire. Tinkles of sleigh bells and distant laughter that seemed like the mirth of wood elves came from every quarter. "'Oh, Diana,' breathed Anne, squeezing Diana's mittened hand under the fur robe, "'isn't it all like a beautiful dream?' Do I really look the same as usual? I feel so different that it seems to me it must show in my looks. You look awfully nice, said Diana, who, having just received a compliment from one of her cousins, felt that she ought to pass it on. You've got the loveliest color. The program that night was a series of thrills for at least one listener in the audience, and, as Anne assured Diana, Every succeeding thrill was thrillier than the last. When Prissy Andrews, attired in a new pink silk waist with a string of pearls about her smooth white throat and real carnations in her hair, rumor whispered that the master had sent all the way to town for them for her, climbed the slimy ladder, dark without one ray of light, and shivered in luxurious sympathy. When the choir sang far above the gentle daisies, and gazed at the ceiling as if it were frescoed with angels. When Sam Sloan proceeded to explain and illustrate how Sockery set a hen, Anne laughed until people sitting near her laughed too, more out of sympathy with her than with amusement at a selection that was rather threadbare even in Avonlea. And when Mr. Phillips gave Mark Antony's oration over the dead body of Caesar in the most 
heart-stirring tones, looking at Prissy Andrews at the end of every sentence, and felt that she could rise and mutiny on the spot if but one Roman citizen led the way. Only one number on the program failed to interest her. When Gilbert Blythe recited Bingen on the Rhine and picked up Rhoda Murray's library book and read it until he had finished, when she sat rigidly stiff and motionless while Diana clapped her hands until they tingled. It was eleven when they got home, sated with dissipation, but with the exceeding sweet pleasure of talking it all over still to come. Everybody seemed asleep, and the house was dark and silent. Anne and Diana tiptoed into the parlor, a long, narrow room out of which the spare room opened. It was pleasantly warm and dimly lighted by the embers of a fire on the grate. "'Let's undress here,' said Diana. "'It's so nice and warm.' "'Hasn't it been a delightful time?' sighed Anne rapturously. "'It must be splendid to get up and recite there. "'Do you suppose we will ever be asked to do it, Diana?' "'Yes, of course, some day. "'They're always wanting the big scholars to recite. "'Gilbert Blythe does often, and he's only two years older than us. "'Oh, Anne, how could you pretend not to listen to him "'when he came to the line, "'There's another, not a sister.' He looked right down at you. "'Diana,' said Anne with dignity, "'you are my bosom friend, but I cannot allow even you to speak to me of that person. "'Are you ready for bed? Let's run a race and see who'll get to the bed first. The suggestion appealed to Diana. The two little white-clad figures flew down the long room, through the spare room door, and bounded on the bed at the same moment. And then something moved beneath them, there was a gasp and a cry, and somebody said in muffled accents, Merciful goodness! Anne and Diana were never able to tell just how they got off that bed and out of the room. They only knew that after one frantic rush, they found themselves tiptoeing shiveringly upstairs. Oh, who was it? What was it? whispered Anne, her teeth chattering with cold and fright. "'It was Aunt Josephine,' said Diana, gasping with laughter. "'Oh, Anne, it was Aunt Josephine. However she came to be there. Oh, and I know she will be furious. It's dreadful. It's really dreadful. But did you ever know anything so funny, Anne?' "'Who's your Aunt Josephine?' "'She's Father's aunt, and she lives in Charlottetown. She's awfully old, seventy anyhow, and I don't believe she was ever a little girl.' We were expecting her out for a visit, but not so soon. She's awfully prim and proper, and she'll scold dreadfully about this, I know. Well, we'll have to sleep with Minnie May, and you can't think how she kicks. Miss Josephine Barry did not appear at the early breakfast the next morning. Mrs. Barry smiled kindly at the two little girls. Did you have a good time last night? I tried to stay awake until you came home, for I wanted to tell you Aunt Josephine had come, and that you would have to go upstairs after all, but I was so tired I fell asleep. I hope you didn't disturb your aunt, Diana. Diana preserved a discreet silence, but she and Anne exchanged furtive smiles of guilty amusement across the table. Anne hurried home after breakfast, and so remained in blissful ignorance of the disturbance which presently resulted in the Barry household until the late afternoon, when she went down to Mrs. Lynde's on an errand for Marilla. "'So, you and Diana nearly frightened poor old Miss Barry to death last night?' said Mrs. Lynde, severely, but with a twinkle in her eye. 
Mrs. Barry was here a few minutes ago on her way to Carmody. She's feeling real worried over it. Old Miss Barry was in a terrible temper when she got up this morning, and Josephine Barry's temper is no joke, I can tell you that. She wouldn't speak to Diana at all. It wasn't Diana's fault, said Anne contritely. It was mine. I suggested racing to see who would get into bed first. I knew it, said Mrs. Lynde, with the exultion of a correct guesser. I knew that idea came out of your head. Well, it's made a nice lot of trouble, that's what. Old Miss Barry came out to stay for a month, but she declares she won't stay another day and is going right back to town tomorrow, Sunday and all as it is. She'd have gone today if they could have taken her. She had promised to pay for a quarter's music lessons for Diana, but now she is determined to do nothing at all for such a tomboy. Oh, I guess they had a lively time of it there this morning. Barry's must feel cut up. Old Miss Barry is rich, and they like to keep on the good side of her. Of course, Mrs. Barry didn't say just that to me, but... I'm a pretty good judge of human nature, that's what. I'm such an unlucky girl, mourned Anne. I'm always getting into scrapes myself and getting my best friends, people I'd shed my heart's blood for, into them too. Can you tell me why it is so, Mrs. Lynde? It's because you're too heedless and impulsive, child, that's what. You never stop to think. Whatever comes into your head to say, you do or say it without a moment's reflection. Oh, but that's the best of it protested Anne. Something just flashes into your mind, so exciting, and you must out with it. If you stop to think it over, you spoil it all. Have you never felt that yourself, Mrs. Lynde? No, Mrs. Lynde had not. She shook her head sagely. You must learn to think a little, Anne, that's what. The proverb you need to go by is, look before you leap, especially into spare room beds. Mrs. Lynde laughed comfortably over her mild joke, but Anne remained pensive. She saw nothing to laugh at in the situation, which to her eyes appeared very serious. When she left Mrs. Lynde's, she took her way across the crusted fields to Orchard Slope. Diana met her at the kitchen door. "'Your Aunt Josephine was very cross about it, wasn't she?' whispered Anne. "'Yes,' answered Diana, stifling a giggle with an apprehensive glance over her shoulder at the closed sitting-room door. "'She was fairly dancing with rage, Anne,' Oh, how she scolded. She said I was the worst-behaved girl she ever saw and that my parents ought to be ashamed of the way they had brought me up. She said she won't stay, and I'm sure I don't care, but father and mother do. Why didn't you tell them it was my fault? demanded Anne. It's likely I'd do such a thing, isn't it? said Diana with just scorn. I'm no tell-tale, Anne Shirley, and anyhow I was just as much to blame as you. Well, I'm going in to tell her myself, said Anne resolutely. Diana stared. "'Anne, surely you'd never what? "'She'll eat you alive!' "'Don't frighten me any more than I'm frightened,' implored Anne. "'I'd rather walk up to a cannon's mouth. "'But I've got to do it, Diana. "'It was my fault, and I've got to confess. "'I've had practice in confessing, fortunately.' "'Well, she's in the room,' said Diana. "'You can go in if you want to. "'I wouldn't dare, and I don't believe you'll do a bit of good.' With this encouragement, Anne bearded the lion in its den, that is to say, walked resolutely up to the sitting-room door and knocked faintly. A sharp, come in, followed. Miss Josephine Barry, thin, prim, and rigid, was knitting fiercely by the fire, her wrath quite unappeased, and her eyes snapping through her gold-rimmed glasses. She wheeled around in her chair, expecting to see Diana, and beheld a white-faced girl whose great eyes were brimmed up with a mixture of desperate courage and shrinking terror. "'Who are you?' 
demanded Miss Josephine Barry, without ceremony. "'I'm Anne of Green Gables,' said the small visitor tremulously, clasping her hands with her characteristic gesture. "'And I've come to confess, if you please.' "'Confess what?' "'That it was all my fault about jumping into bed on you last night. I suggested it. Diana would never have thought of such a thing, I'm sure. Diana's a very ladylike girl, Miss Barry, so you must see how unjust it is to blame her.' "'Oh, I must, eh? I rather think Diana did her share of the jumping at least. Such carryings on in a respectable house.' "'But we were only in fun,' persisted Anne. "'I think you ought to forgive us, Miss Barry, now that we've apologized. And anyhow, please forgive Diana and let her have her music lessons. Diana's heart is set on her music lessons, Miss Barry, and I know too well what it is to set your heart on a thing and not get it. If you must be cross with anyone, be cross with me.' I've been so used in my early days to having people cross at me that I can endure it much better than Diana can. Much of the snap had gone out of the old lady's eyes by this time and was replaced by a twinkle of amused interest, but she still said severely, I don't think it is any excuse for you that you were only in fun. Little girls never indulged in that kind of fun when I was young. You don't know what it is like to be awakened out of a sound sleep after a long and arduous journey by two great girls coming bounce down on you. "'I don't know, but I can imagine,' said Anne eagerly. "'I'm sure it must have been very disturbing. "'But then there is our side of it, too. "'Have you any imagination, Miss Barry? "'If you have, just put yourself in our place. "'We didn't know there was anybody in that bed, "'and you nearly scared us to death. "'It was simply awful the way we felt, "'and then we couldn't sleep in the spare room after being promised. "'I suppose you're used to sleeping in spare rooms, but... Just imagine what you would feel if you were a little orphan girl and never had such an honor. All the snap had gone by this time. Miss Barry actually laughed, a sound which caused Diana, waiting in speechless agony in the kitchen outside, to give a great gasp of relief. I'm afraid my imagination is a little rusty. It's been so long since I used it, she said. I dare say your claim to sympathy is just as strong as mine. It all depends on the way we look at it. "'Sit down here and tell me about yourself.' "'Oh, I'm very sorry I can't,' said Anne firmly. "'I would like to, because you seem like an interesting lady, "'and you might even be a kindred spirit, "'although you don't look very much like it. "'But it is my duty to go home to Miss Marilla Cuthbert. "'Miss Marilla Cuthbert is a very kind lady "'who has taken me to bring up properly. "'She's doing her best, but it is very discouraging work. "'You must not blame her because I jumped on the bed. "'But before I go,' I do wish you would tell me if you will forgive Diana and stay just as long as you meant to in Avonlea. I think perhaps I will if you'll come over and talk to me occasionally, said Miss Barry. That evening, Miss Barry gave Diana a silver bangle bracelet and told the senior members of the household that she had unpacked her valise. I've made up my mind to stay simply for the sake of getting better acquainted with that Anne girl, she said frankly. She amuses me, and in my time of life an amusing person is a rarity. Marilla's only comment when she heard the story was, I told you so. This was for Matthew's benefit. Miss Barry stayed her month out and over. She was a more agreeable guest than usual, for Anne kept her in good humor. They became firm friends. When Miss Barry went away, she said, "'Remember you, Anne girl. When you come to town, you're to visit me, and I'll put you in my very spare spare-room bed to sleep.' "'Miss Barry was a kindred spirit after all,' Anne confided to Marilla. "'You wouldn't think so to look at her, but she is. You don't find it right out at first, as in Matthew's case, 
but after a while you come to see it. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them in the world. End of chapter 19 I have to say I love the way Marilla caved. Finally. She just cracks me up. <sighs> well, there's a lot of detailed information that I did not hit you with up front because this this whole idea about going to this evening's event is kind of like going to the Lyceum or going to hear a lecture or a speech or a debate from way back when we did North and South. Same kind of an idea, except in this case, because the community is rather small, the kids are involved in this. And debating clubs were pretty standard issue. Oftentimes, coffee houses or pubs would become the de facto location of the debating club, which we saw in Bleak House, where that was actually where the inquest was held, was in the pub, because that's where everybody was. So make it easy. The pompadour thing. So Anne has her hair, Diana does her hair up in a pompadour style, but only in the front, because she wasn't allowed to put her hair up all the way around. That would be too grown up of her. And if you aren't familiar with pompadour style, I have a link on the show notes at craftlit.com slash 488. And it's the Gibson girl hair. It's the, the pile it all up on your head and let tendrils of it fall, you know, artistically framing your face. Lu actually, Lucy Honeychurch in Room with a View in the movie, Helena Bonham Carter's hair is, in some scenes, a pompadour. Poofy in the front and maybe even all the way around, held together in a bun on top. But I thought it was interesting that girls weren't allowed to do it all the way around, just in the front. There was a joke that I don't know anybody who would have gotten at all, but Prissy Andrews did the, the recitation of Curfew Must Not Ring Tonight. And she must have gotten the lines wrong because I don't think Anne would have gotten the lines wrong. What Anne says when she's repeating how marvelous Prissy Andrews' recitation is, Anne says that the line was climbed the slimy ladder dark without one ray of light. The, the real line is climbed the dusty ladder on which fell no ray of light. So I'm going to throw that one on Prissy. I don't think Anne would make that kind of mistake. But there are some other things that were going on that are rather funny. The how Sockery set a hen is part of that larger tradition that we've hearkened back to several times around the late 1800s, early 1900s, when authors and sometimes people who were writing for the newspaper would do dialect humor. And the, the example that we looked at before was the uh, Irishman who wrote a humorous piece in Irish dialect, often insulting Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, who loved it, wound up becoming friends with that particular author. Sockery set a hen is similar in nature. It's a German accent that is being dialectified. <laughs> it's not very long. And it is funny, and some of it's funny because of the way things get said. And some of it's just funny because it's a funny situation. And then there's Gilbert and the Bingen on the Rhine. This is a war poem about dying on the field of battle. Gilbert is looking meaningfully at Anne, evidently, and she's having none of it, so Pfft, whatever. The Bingen on the Rhine stanza 
I mean, it's it's romantic, capital R, in that it is big, swoopy, romance, death, nature, melancholy, heartbreak, war, all of those big, epic things that Anne would be attracted to. So here's Gilbert having picked this one, and she's blown off. And then we have Miss Barry, Diana's aunt. First off, I'm a little miffed at Mrs. Barry. I'm back to my position of being miffed at Mrs. Barry because she couldn't leave a note for the girls. Oh, I was going to stay up to tell you that your aunt is in the room in the bed I told you to sleep in, but I got tired. So whatever. I found that very annoying. She could have left a note. It wasn't the girl's fault. All of that said, the scene where Anne goes to apologize is just spectacular. And Anne, I think, does a remarkably solid job of, of working it and ap- apologizing and owning what she did, but also doing a pretty good job of explaining why. And this is the thing that I, I see a lot of people not doing with kids. There was a, a mom at a, a breakfast last year who was talking about how she had wanted to do something and her son was giving her a really hard time about it. And, and it was really important to her. And it sounded like it would have been really important to him too. But, you know, because it was his mom, he was blowing it off. It, just like any kid. I mean, I will routinely have friends of mine help my son with homework because he's not going to listen to me, but he'll listen to them. Even if we said the same thing, it wouldn't matter. So she was kind of incensed that he was blowing her off. And when I said, well, didn't you explain to him why, why it mattered? She literally looked at me like I'd walked off the surface of the sun. I said, no, why would I do that? Oh, I don't know. Because maybe he'd tell you what he was thinking. And then hmm, you could have a conversation about that and find out what's going on with your kid before anything goes wrong for real. I guess it has to be the two-way street, right? The kid has to listen. The adult has to listen. Anne got lucky. She listened. That's normal. But then she had an adult who was willing to be a sympathetic listener. And funny to boot, man. I really liked her. Miss Barry. She's my new favorite person of the week. And on that note, that happy note, I leave you. I am going to go and build more sound booth so that I don't sit in a creaky chair anymore. I can't stand up. <laughs> where I'm recording. So it's it's a little tricky, but it will get better. All right, you take care of yourselves. Have a good one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlet listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.